invite you to turn with me in your bulletins or in your Bibles if you have them to Judges chapter 1. We'll be reading 1 verse 1 through 2 verse 5. We'll be skipping some of the middle parts, even though it's there for context. We'll be going from verse 28 and then jump to 2 verse 1. Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahaman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name of Deber was formerly Kiriath Sephar. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sephar and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went, and they settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said, And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. 
the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, the name of the city was formerly Luz, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, please, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, or for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Skipping ahead to 2 verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join with me in prayer. Father, as we, um, as we have just heard and will continue to reflect on um, this passage, this passage that is part of your word, Lord, uh, we are reminded in these verses of the importance of hearing you. And so that is our request from the beginning to the end. Lord, would you please enable us through Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, to be a people who in every way hear you, that we might be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here with us last week when we began our series, Judges, you know that we started by looking at the very end of this story, and we saw an utter mess, a society that has fallen apart. It was politically anarchic, chaotic. It was socially torn apart where, where the, the, the rich were taking advantage of the weak, where family ties were broken apart, and it was religiously torn apart as well where, where people thought they were worshiping God by going to idols. Everything was a mess. And we, we asked a couple of questions as we looked at these verses. What is going on? And is there a way out? 
This morning, I want to ask a third question that I think that passage provoked, but now we have a better opportunity to consider together, and that is, what in the world happened? Like, what went wrong? There's this subtle detail near the end of the passage we read last week where we find that this mercenary lawless Levite named Jonathan was the grandson or perhaps the great-grandson of none other than Moses. And when we hear that, I think our jaws are supposed to drop. How is this possible? The person through whom God speaks to his people, his children have children and their children have children, and one of their kids, grown up in the, in the tradition of Moses, completely has lost it altogether. And that's a picture of what happened with the people. How, how could things fall so far so quickly? How did this happen? It's an important question, I think, to consider. Um, uh, Some of you might be familiar with uh, the business writer Jim Collins. He's most famous for a couple of books called From Good to Great and Built to Last. There's another book that's less popular, I think, because in some ways it's more pessimistic, and that's called How the Mighty Fall. And it's, it's talking about how there are times where you have companies that are doing great, and yet we see them completely crumble apart. And he says, it's worth looking at that because if we can see what causes those things, we can maybe avoid them or if we start going down that path, we can learn what is the right way out. And in some ways, Judges is this massive case study of how the mighty fall. And and we are invited to look and see how did this happen? Why did this happen? What went on? And really, that question, I think, is front and center of the passage that we just read. It it begins from a point of strength with the name of Joshua. If you know anything about the story of Joshua, when you have the previous chapters in the previous book, you see what seems like one triumph after another. You see like God's people faithfully taking hold of the land that has been given them. You see a a, a love for God and, and a courage as they are taking hold of the land. All seems good. And there's a lot of hope. But when you get to the very end of our passage, in in 2 verse 4, what you see is a people who are weeping. Weeping because they have failed in such a way that there is no apparent solution to the problem that they have created for themselves. And so the question that I think is underlying this is, is, is what happened, what went wrong, what caused them to go from such great heights to weeping at the very end. And and our passage actually tells us, after chapter 1 kind of describes this really quick overview of the campaign to continue to take over Canaan, in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, you have an, an angel who kind of comes in on God's behalf as a messenger of God to give them kind of a progress report, an assessment from God's perspective. And he starts by kind of reminding them a backstory, verse 1. You know, I brought you up out of Egypt. God is saying, remember, I I rescued you from the pits. I rescued you from slavery, and my purpose was to give you this land. I wanted to give you this land flowing with milk and honey. I wanted to pour out my goodness upon you in a relationship I had with you. I made a covenant with you, with my desire for you to experience my kindness. But, verse 2, 
Here's what you should have done. You sh- I, I told them you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall not break down their altars, but you have not obeyed. Or, or if you might remember from Deuteronomy, that's the word that could easily be translated heard. You have not heard my voice. And here is the key to understanding this opening passage. In some ways, this is the key to understanding the entire book of Judges. What went wrong? What was the thing that led Israel from being in a place of strength and hopefulness to a place of despair and weeping? A failure to hear God's word. This is how we're supposed to, I think, once we've looked at these verses, how we're supposed to understand what chapter one is about. Chapter one is kind of like, you know, how sometimes with movies, they cover lots of ground with this montage with one scene to another. Well, that's what you have. You have something that's covering all sorts of area throughout the country. It's covering decades upon decades of war and whatnot. But what it does is it flashes kind of one scene after another to give you a picture of what's going on. And there really are two halves to chapter one. The first half is focusing on the southern tribes, Judah and Simeon and Benjamin. And what you have here is a picture of what could have been. You have a picture of what it looks like to actually hear God's word and what happens when you do. But beginning in verse 20, we deal with the northern tribes, Joseph and uh, connected to Joseph. And here we see where they end up, where, where things go wrong, where we see a failure to hear God's word. And so as we're trying to understand what went wrong and and what it looks like, we're given both a picture of what it should be and what it could have been, and also a picture of what failure to hear God's word looks like. And and that's, we'll we'll look at that in those two parts. So we begin with, with the more positive picture. What does it look like to hear God's word? From the very beginning, we we see this activity. Joshua dies, which is a huge moment if you think about it, because From the moment that they left Egypt, they have always had a clear leader. First, it was Moses, then it was Joshua, and now who is going to lead them? And so Israel does something right. They they turn to God and they inquire of him, probably by speaking to the priests. We know we're supposed to go into Canaan. We know we're supposed to, to, to... to clear this area of idolatry. This, by the way, is something worth understanding. That the key here was not just some sort of kind of national war. If, if anyone, and we see examples of this even in our passage, we see examples of this with Rahab. If any one of the people who were in Canaan decided to turn towards God, they would be incorporated into the people of God. But God gave them this command. You need to remove this place completely of idols, of all idolatry. This land is holy to me. And so Israel understands this, and they say, we know your command, so who shall go first? And God says, Judah, I've given this land into their hands. And what happens next is something extraordinary, something almost miraculous. Judah acts on God's word. They respond immediately. After hearing they're supposed to go, their leaders meet with the leaders of Simeon, the tribe that was relationally closer to them, and they start strategizing together. Let's go up together. We can fight together. 
we're here, and then when you guys have to fight, we'll fight with you, and there's an agreement there. They think, and then they send out words to all their tribes, and throughout the area, in every tent of Judah and Simeon, men are strapping on their different weapons, they are kissing their wives goodbye, they are marching out, and they are sieging together Bezek as they begin their campaign. And what we're meant to see is, here is a crucial part of what it means to hear God's word truly. It means to respond. Which seems perhaps like an obvious thing, but I would suggest that that's an easy thing for us to forget. Sometimes I think when it comes to hearing God's word, we can confuse knowing with growing, right? We can, we can feel like, ah, now that I understand, now that I have more information, or, or now that I have more insight into why I do things and how the world is, that I feel so much more mature, but But here we see what what God expects us to do when He speaks to us is to act on it. Hearing God's Word involves responding. As we get to the next scene, we we, we see more than that. So so they've attacked Bezak, this city that's a massive city. It seems like a, a major war. And we're told that the leader of Bezak, that's what Adonai Bezak means, just literally means the Lord of Bezak. In verse 6 it says, he flees. And it seems like a small detail, but imagine if you've been waging this major campaign, there are undoubtedly many wounded, exhausted soldiers, and one guy, a coward who was supposed to lead, has fled. And you can imagine the calculus, it's not going to make a difference, let's just leave him alone. But that's, that's not what they do. Though they are exhausted, the soldiers go and they chase after Adonai Bezek, and they bring him to justice in a very gruesome fashion. But But let's not get distracted by the gruesomeness of the thumbs and the toes. The point that we're supposed to understand is that they see God's command to completion. That is, hearing God's word is not just about being responsive. It's about being resolute. There are times when God gives us instructions that things that we're told will feel maybe unimportant or a final detail that feels like it's just not that significant compared to the rest. But that's, they don't make the calculus. They, they see it to completion. There is follow-through. They are resolute in their commitment to obey and hear God's word out. Then we get to the third scene, starting in verse 11. And here, kind of a, a war hero enters the picture. Caleb, if you know anything about the... the the Old Testament, the first five books, you know that Caleb has been, been in this for a while. He was one of the 12 spies that were sent out to look at the promised land. Ten came back and said, their armies are terrifying, they're too great for him. But Caleb was one of the ones who's like, yeah, that's true, but we got it because God is on our side. And there's just this courage that he has about him. And you can imagine now, this is, you know, some 50 years later, you know, his hair is probably white, face like leather, and yet he's still fit, and he still has a sharp wit. You know, if it was in modern day, I'd imagine him in the tent with other people chewing on a stogie and like with a stick kind of drawing out a map and and making strategy. And then at one point, he takes the stick and he points to one spot in the map that he's drawn on the ground of the tent. He says, Kiriath Sefer, someone needs to take that. You know, I've got a granddaughter, Aksa. She's about ready to marry, but she needs to marry someone who is worthy of her. If someone takes that city, I'll let him marry Aksa. 
And Othniel is somewhere in that tent and inspired by Caleb's steely determination. And he says, I am going to do it. He grabs a bunch of his friends, his family members, like, let's take the city. And with courage, knowing that this is probably a daunting thing, if it was easy, Caleb would not have talked about it. They go and they take the city. And he's granted this daughter. Now, that sounds weird to us, right? Like when we hear arranged marriages, our Western ears kind of like, oh, this is, this is creepy. But you need to recognize that in this picture, Axa is not some object, not some shrinking violet. She is assertive. She takes hold. The moment she finds that she is going to be marrying Othniel, she doesn't protest, but she says, we need to bargain with Caleb. You need to ask as a dowry for land. And, and Othniel is a smart person. He knows when to listen to wisdom, so he does, and he's granted the Negev. But Aksa knows that she, she, she's familiar with the area, and she knows that's not quite enough. And so she boldly goes to her grandfather and says, Grandpa, you need to understand something. This isn't enough for us. We need some water as well, or else our, our animals aren't going to do well. And, and Caleb knows when he is finally outmatched by his granddaughter and gives her the two springs, the upper and the lower springs. Now, what is the point of all of this, this strange snapshot? Well, remember this. Land here is not just about land. Land is what God said, this is the gift that I have for you. I want to give you my goodness in this land. Take hold of it. And that's what we see these three people, each in their own ways, doing. If God says this is good, if God says this is worth taking hold of, we will take hold of this wholeheartedly. What you see here is that not only is, is hearing God about responding and about being resolute, it's about responding with zeal, right? It's, it's about pushing oneself. It's about taking courageous steps it's about asking impolite and awkward questions because there is something that is worth pursuing, and they pursue with all of their might. Now, I, I think this is worth just kind of dwelling on because I, I wonder if when we think of how hearing God's Word looks like, if this is, if this is the image that comes to our mind, something so active. Yes, there is a place for kind of a quietness. In fact, it's where it has to begin, a quietness as we seek to listen to God's Word. But Scripture is clear that that's not all hearing God's Word is about. In the New Testament, it speaks of as we have been changed by Jesus, we are to put to death the things of this world, very much echoing the judge's idea. Or, or Paul, when he is speaking to his Philippian Brothers and sisters, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he goes on to describe his life about how forgetting what is behind, he strains towards what is head to take hold of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Or, or Hebrews uses race language where it says, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Do you hear how energetic this, this summons is? Th that's what it looks like to hear God's Word, not just to quietly take it in, but as we take it in, then to lead it to response, to resolve, to zeal. And if you look at what happens in these opening verses, you see that as people do this, as they hear it actively, good things happen. 
As Judah responds, he and Simeon are brought together in, in deeper bonds of brotherhood. As, as we see Adonai Bezek being pursued, we see justice that he himself acknowledges, God has done with me what I deserve. As, as Othniel pursues and all these things happen, we see a healthy marriage being formed where equal partners are pursuing what God has given them together. And in all of this, they are granted the bounty of the land. Good things happen as people take hold of God's word and act upon it. And this, we are meant to understand, is what could have been. But it isn't. Because we get to the second part of our passage, beginning with the northern tribes, the tribes associated with Joseph. And, and it's clear that we're meant to compare and contrast because both of them start the same way about how the house goes up to attack the city. Judah went up to attack Bezek, and now Joseph went up to attack Bethel. And here we see something similar. Remember how in Bezek, someone tried escaping the city at the very end, and then he was pursued. Well, here we have someone leaving the city at the very beginning. But instead of that person being pursued... They seek to persuade. So it says, Spies saw a man, in verse 24, coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. It's, it's a strategically smart move, if you think about it. I mean, what's one man? But if he can give them intel so that they can find a better way into the city, it will make their battle more effective. It is a strategically smart move, and it really works beautifully. Verse 25, and he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. Initially, it looked exactly like the right thing to do. For probably 10 or 20 years, it looked like this was the smart call. But let's compare and contrast. This is very different from what we saw before, isn't it? With, with before, God's people are seeking to fulfill his instructions to the final detail, bringing the person to justice. But what do we see here? With this, with this one man, it says, they make this deal and they promise, we will deal kindly with you. And that word kindly actually is the word chesed, which is almost always associated with some degree of covenant connection. They are making a covenant with an idolater. Instead of being resolute, they're making a compromise. And while at first this seems like the right call, notice what happens. They're supposed to be wiping out Luz from the land, idolatry from the land. But what happens? The man went to the land of Hittites, built a city, called its name Luz. And that is its name to its day. There is a compromise here that leads to allowing idolatry to continue to hold the land. And then we see something similar in the subsequent verses. There is this long list of tribe after tribe and how they are incapable of fulfilling all that they're called to do. And there's really two things that keep on being repeated. The first one is what we see at the very beginning, verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. And again and again we see they do not drive out the inhabitants. They do not drive out the inhabitants. And then the second detail we see repeated in verse 28. When Israel grew strong... 
they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And if you were to continue from verse to verse, you will see that theme is repeated again. They put them to forced labor. They put them to forced labor. These two, two themes that are repeated. And let me suggest that the first one itself is actually not, not inherently worrisome on its own because God, back in Deuteronomy, said, I will not drive the people out completely immediately. There is going to be a process, a call for patience, for endurance. Their failure immediately to drive the people out is not necessarily a sign they were doing something wrong because God said that's how it's going to work. The problem comes in the second part where it says, and when Israel became strong or when Israel had the upper hand, they brought these people into forced labor. Which if you think about it, is definitely the easier choice. If they have to choose between pushing God's people, pushing those idolaters out and destroying the cities, or instead allowing them to stay, but then they get to be slaves. That is easier in almost every way. Easier on the outset, there's less work. And also it makes their lives easier from, the, from onward because now they have slaves to, to serve them. I mean, so what if there are some Canaanites who now are going to continue just to kind of live amongst them? So what if that means they don't get to take all of the land? So what if that means that in some places there are, there are altars to idols? It's a win, right? A win is a win. Yay, God's people, we've done it. It is easier. But again, let's contrast Let's contrast what we saw with Othniel and with Caleb and Oxa saying, we will do everything we can to take every inch of land that we can because God says it's good. See the zeal there. And what do we see here? We see complacency. We see an acceptance of allowing just kind of idolatry to stay. Probably there's even justification of who knows over time, maybe they'll be convinced by us, but it's definitely easier. Do you, do you see what we see here, that there is a, a choice saying we would prefer to do what makes sense and what is easier than to do what God says is good? And I think it's probably easy for us as we look at, at these choices to recognize the mistake they made and being willing to compromise and being complacent. It's much harder, I would suggest, for us to look around and see those same choices and the temptations that we face today. Just ask, ask these questions. Like, what compromises do we think Christians are willing to make today to be able to take hold of power? What sinful means are we willing to overlook to be able to make sure good things take place? Or think about with the church, one of the tragically common stories is how you see church after church being willing to overlook sin if they're getting results. Yes, the leader is abusive. Yes, things are manipulative. But do you see how quickly we're growing? Do you see how many people are being saved? Or even closer to home, as we think of complacency, are there places in your life where you know God has been saying, this isn't okay, but, but it's just not something you're willing to deal with. It doesn't seem important enough right now. See, this, our passage is telling us, is what it looks like not to hear God's word. 
It's explicit when we get to chapter 2, isn't it? When, when God describes what their obligation was, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and yet we saw that is exactly what they did. You shall break down their altars, and yet we saw that is exactly what they have not done. And so he says, you have not obeyed, you have not heard my voice. And then he goes on to ask this this devastatingly simple question. What is this you have done? When, When we involve ourselves in compromise or complacency, we generally try to shut our eyes to it. We make justifications. We put a fog around it so that we don't think about it. And God doesn't allow that anymore. He he penetrates, he says, What is this you have done? And then he goes on to say, here is the consequence of your failure to hear. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. You have chosen to allow them to stay in the land. I will give you what you have chosen. And the result is this. They shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. Here is where it all goes wrong. What we are are meant to see is that this sin, this, this falling from what they could have been, this failure to listen seems initially small. But it gets bigger each generation as as the people who are there are a thorn in their flesh, as the idols become more and more of a trap. At first, they remember who God is, but their children start thinking that, you know what, it looks different, and maybe they have a point, and the next generation forgets what it looks like even to worship God, and idolatry becomes the norm. And at the end, what we see is people who are trying to do what is right, they think they're doing what is right, but it's only in their eyes, and they are so far from the truth, and it's an utter mess. Here's where it begins, a sin that begets more sin, that begets more sin to devastating consequences and that concludes with weeping, for they have failed. Jim Collins says we need to look to see what is the failure, what is the thing that leads. Here it is. And so it would seem like the application is, is fairly clear for us, to look where we are not hearing God's word. To, to, to see and try to find where we are, are compromising, where we are, are choosing to bend what should not be bent, where we're being complacent, where we should be zealous. Instead, to, to respond to God's words, to, to be resolute in our determination, to, to be zealous in taking hold of what God has for us. And I want to say that is, that is part of the application. But it's not quite complete. I, I want to suggest actually that the, the passage we have here is a little more subtle than just that. When we get back to 2 verse 3, or sorry, 2 verse 2, that, 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 that question, what is this you have done? It's actually more significant than perhaps the first reading will appear to us because there's only one other time that God asks this exact question. It's another time where someone has chosen to 
to just not treat what God's instructions are seriously because she decided that she saw something that made more sense to do. She took hold of a fruit because it was good in her eyes and she ate. And, and, and then when God meets with Eve, he says, what is this you have done? We, we've said that here, this moment is kind of identifying Israel's fall as they've entered the promised land, how this is the sin that will spiral further and further out to, to catastrophic conclusion. But, but what Judges is actually signaling for us in this verse is saying that, that this choice, this, this failure to hear is itself the offspring of an earlier sin that begat sin that begat sin, that, that the, from the very beginning, this choice to not hear has cast all of humanity into this tendency to keep on making the same mistake. The, the way this passage is framed is signaling to us that there is something deeper going on, that there is something fundamentally wrong with us, that until that is addressed, this sin will continue to beget more sin and there is no way out. Something needs to happen. I want to return to the passages that we, we considered in the New Testament before, that all of them exhort to this energetic obedience, and, and, and notice that there is something common in all of them. Paul doesn't say in Philippians, work out your obedience to God's law with fear and trembling. What does he say? Work out your salvation. He's saying something's happened. When, when elsewhere he says to put to death the things of this world, he is saying first, you have been crucified in Christ. Something has happened to you, therefore act. When he says, or when the writer of Hebrews says that we are called to run, to throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that entangles us, to run with perseverance, we are told, so that we might fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the originator and perfecter of our faith. Something has happened. And when Paul lays out his example and he says, forgetting what is behind and I strain towards what is ahead, he says, to take hold of the upward call of God. As God is speaking to me, He is calling me towards something good, towards the heavenly kingdom, the upward call of God that comes in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. God doesn't just speak to us anymore just in His words. He knows that there is not enough in us to respond to what God says, so God speaks to us in His Son. And in the power of his son and what his son has done, something has happened. Let me try putting it a different way. I think when we oftentimes, and this is going to be a, a thing that we return to again and again in Judges, when we hear different figures who are kind of put forward as exemplary, we, we want to be like them. We want to be like the Caleb or the Othniel and the Aksa. And that's good. I think that's part of the way that we're supposed to feel when we're reading these things. But it's also important to realize that we actually don't need to be the Caleb with steely determination because there already is someone who with steely determination faced rejection, faced opposition, continued to be faithful to God to the very end. We don't have to be that person, we get to be the person who is in the room with him, who are, is inspired and led by his still will. We, we don't need to be 
Othniel to have the courage to just kind of like jump into the city because, because we already have one who is greater than Othniel, who did battle with courage all the way to death and conquered sin and death. We only need to be the soldiers who are following in his wake, knowing that he is winning and we just need to stay with him. We, we don't need to be Aksa because we already have someone who boldly, day and night, is asking the Father on our behalf for all the good that we need. We just get to be the children who grow up in the home that Oxus says, go out and enjoy the land that I've already won for you. We, we have a Savior, a King, an older brother in Jesus, who by His Spirit, through His victory over death itself, has changed us fundamentally and has given us a security in our future that cannot be taken away. And because of that, we can do what people and judges could not. We can respond with confidence. We can be capable of seeing where we are compromising and complacent, and we instead, by the power of the Spirit, can respond with zeal, with determination, with resolve, because God is at work in us through Christ Jesus, because something has happened. And so because of that, because we don't need to be afraid, because we have a leader who goes before us, let me now return to what we said before and invite you with me to respond. To ask yourself, when God is speaking to you, where is there in your life the temptation to compromise? Where, as you consider your life, is there complacency where you know obedience would look different, but you haven't yet pursued it? What does it look like for you to hear God's word and respond with resolve and with zeal? You have a king who is with you and for you and will give you the strength to respond. And so let me invite us even right now to respond in prayer where we see sin to acknowledge by confession and where we see where we are called to plead with God to ask for help knowing he will do so. Let's spend a couple minutes in silent prayer responding to God's word to hear it. And then I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.